Hello, and welcome to Historic Charleston. You should be standing on the corners of Church and Elliott Street with the Dog and Horse Portrait Studio behind you. Across the street from you is 103 Church Street. It's the three-story brick building with white and green shutters and a black wrought iron balcony. You see it? Today, it's a private art gallery. But back in 1865, it was a restaurant called The Bachelor's Retreat. The Bachelor's Retreat was one of the most popular spots in Charleston during the Civil War era. And as it turns out, it is one of the most important places in Charleston's culinary history. The man who owned it was an enslaved chef named Nat Fuller. And at the start of Reconstruction, Nat used food as a way to bring people together, to transcend war and hatred and to gather them around a common table to break bread. In April of 1865, Nat Fuller invited leaders of the white and newly freed African-American communities in Charleston to sit down together for the very first truly integrated meal in the city's history. It was quite an event. Nat called it the Reconciliation Feast. Picture that dinner. In front of the Bachelor's Retreat, African-American Union Army soldiers stood guard as the guests arrived dressed in their very finest. Now look up to the second floor. That's the room where the feast actually happened. Blacks and whites seated together at a giant banquet table as fancy waiters served Nat's dishes. After 200 years of African-American bondage and suffering, what Nat did was truly revolutionary. It may have been just one meal, but that meal changed Charleston. And I should know, because exactly 150 years later, his reconciliation feast changed my life too. I'm Chef Kevin Mitchell, and I've spent my life cooking in some of the best kitchens around the country. And on April 19, 2015, I had one of the greatest honors of my career. I was fortunate enough to be one of the chefs who put together the 150-year anniversary Nat Fuller feast right here in Charleston. We came together to reintroduce Nat's message of breaking bread and to make sure both his legacy and his dishes were not lost to time. I'm going to tell you about Nat's 1865 feast, as well as the one I put on in 2015. And along the way, I'll let you taste a bit of his story for yourself. All right, so let's get going. Facing the bachelor's retreat, turn right and walk towards the intersection. Today, I'm going to tell you about Nat's 1865 feast, as well as the one I put on in 2015. And along the way, I'll let you taste a bit of his story for yourself. All right, so let's get going. Facing the bachelor's retreat, turn right and walk towards the intersection. Picture this. By 1865, Charleston was in ruins, this street included. Behind you, the buildings had been torn apart by artillery shells. Up the street in front of you, entire city blocks had been destroyed by a massive fire in 1861. To your right, Union ships had been blockading the harbor, stopping Charleston from getting any food or supplies. But despite all that destruction, the end of the war also meant freedom for Charleston's slaves, including Nat. And as the owner of a popular restaurant, he saw the opportunity to rebuild Charleston, not just physically, but spiritually as well. All right, when you get to the intersection ahead, make a right. All right, you should be on Broad Street now. Keep walking straight. So, how did an enslaved man wind up owning a restaurant? Nat's journey from slave to master chef and restaurateur is truly as remarkable as his food. It was a skill as a chef that eventually enabled him to achieve some independence within the brutal system of slavery and run his own restaurant. And we'll find out just how he did it in a little bit. Go ahead and keep walking. Up ahead on your right, you're going to see a place called Normandy Farm Bakery. When you get there, stop and I'll tell you what to do. During my career, I've been an executive chef at some amazing places around this country. And in 2008, I was invited to become the first African-American instructor at the Culinary Institute of Charleston. And in the years since, I've fallen in love with this great city, its spirit, and of course, its great food. And the more I fell in love with the local food, the more I wanted to know about its historic and cultural roots. 
in a moment, I'm going to introduce you to my spirit guide in culinary history and my partner in planning the 2015 Nat Fuller Feast, Professor David Shields. Now, you should be arriving at Normandy Farm Bakery. It's a great building with a red door frame at 19 Broad Street. Stop outside the bakery when you get there. As the name suggests, this place is known for making a key ingredient in Nat's story, bread. In 1865, Nat embraced the custom of breaking bread and most likely started his feast with a piece of rice bread. In 2015, we started our feast by breaking bread too. So it only seems right to start our walk by breaking bread together. Normandy Farm supplies many of the top restaurants in town with their fresh bread and we're going to try some. The owner of Normandy Farm, Mike Ray, recommends their daily toast, which is available most days after about 4 p.m. It's baked with all local ingredients right across the water from here on James Island and topped with something seasonal and amazing. And it's different every time. So when you're ready, pause me, head inside and order the daily toast if it's after 4 p.m. If it's earlier, if you don't care for the toast, don't worry. Everything they make is delicious. So order what you like and let them know you're with Detour. All right, pause me. And once you've ordered and you're settled in, Press play again. Okay, do you have a snack? While you eat, I want to introduce you to David Shields, who is the author of Southern Provisions, a Bible on Southern food and history. But David is more than just an expert. He's like the Indiana Jones of Southern cuisine, digging up the ingredients, history, and the stories about food that have been lost over the years. And during one of his many quests, he stumbled across the story of Nat Fuller. Here's David to tell you more. I've been on a quest to honor chefs as artists by writing a book called The Culinarians. It's about the greatest American chefs and restaurateurs throughout our history. And it's going to be published later this year. As I was looking at Southern history, numbers of stories and figures emerged. And one of the most amazing was that of this man. Nat Fuller. I mean, first, how does a slave in Charleston own a restaurant? And not just a restaurant, the finest restaurant in Charleston. And then, when the Civil War ends, he finds a way to throw a splendid feast at a time when the city's been virtually destroyed and people have been on rations, in some cases, for years. A feast that blows everyone away. It's just one of the most inspiring stories I've ever found. Nat Fuller was a master chef, and he used food to make people realize that they share the same senses. Think about that. The same taste. The same touch. The differences that we imagine separate us are just illusions, and they can be dissolved. And that's what Nat was trying to do. Thanks, David. Okay, if you need more time to finish, press pause. When you're done, meet me back outside and hit play. Otherwise, let's go. All right, you back outside? With Normandy Farm to your back, turn right and continue up Broad Street. You're going to cross the crosswalk that's just up ahead on your left. Go ahead and take this crosswalk to cross Broad Street. Okay, you're going to continue walking straight when you get to the other side. You should be passing the Martin Gallery on your left. You're going to walk to the three-way corner up ahead. Now, Nat's journey from slave to master chef was a remarkable one. And to tell it, we've got to start at the beginning. And Nat's beginning was awfully rough. From the early 1600s all the way to the end of the Civil War, Charleston was the epicenter of the slave trade in North America. Watch for traffic at this parking lot as you cross. I'm about to show you one of the most terrible but important spots in Nat Fuller's life. Except, of course, Africans were forced to come here. The city grew rich off the backs of slaves for 200 years. And during that time, it was the slaves who built much of the city you're walking through now. Brick by brick. 
Sometimes I wonder whether any of my own ancestors came through Charleston. Now, you should be approaching a three-way intersection with a stop sign. Make a left onto the near side of the cobblestone street. This is Chalmers Street, the hub of the slave trade here in Charleston. And when he was just 15 years old, Nat Fuller was sold here on this very street. As you walk, you should be on the left side of the street. Up ahead on your right, you should see a building with faded words, Old Slave Mart Museum, written across the top. Stop when you're standing across from it. Watch out for the parking lot driveway as you cross it. You should be in front of the Old Slave Mart Museum, one of the places where slaves were bought and sold here. I'm going to hand you over to someone really special who can tell you more about this place. Well, my name is Joseph McGill. I'm a docent at the Old Slave Mart Museum in Charleston, South Carolina, and I am the founder of the Slave Dwelling Project. We as a nation tend to tell the stories of our past through the buildings that we choose to preserve. Joseph's Slave Dwelling Project seeks to find and save the places where slaves used to live, work, and be sold. Places like the one in front of you that are often otherwise bulldozed over or swept under the rug. He is passionate about preserving the real stories of enslaved African Americans. And it's just one of the reasons he was one of the 80 special people, the movers and shakers in Charleston, invited to attend our 2015 Nat Fuller Feast. For a young Nat Fuller, Trauma Street would, would have been bustling, uh, bustling with activities, activities of the buying and selling of enslaved people. 40% of those who would be enslaved in this nation were brought into this nation uh, through the port of Charleston. The population of, of, of the state of South Carolina in 1860 was approximately 703,000 people. And of that 703,000 people, approximately 402,000 of them were enslaved. So the enslaved population was the majority population. Uh, I've heard numbers that say 60% of, of modern day African Americans can trace their genealogy through the port of Charleston. Even the street under your feet right now is tied to slavery. Chalmers Street was made of cobblestone, um, sand and cobblestone. Those cobblestone had been used as ballast in ships, in ships that um, likely transported enslaved people to and from Africa where they derived from. In the 1850s and 60s, you would have seen auctioneers all along the street standing on wooden stages, selling off human chattel to the highest bidder. Children as young as five being separated from their mothers, husbands and wives torn apart and sold to different owners. If you wanna get a stark and disturbing picture of how slavery functioned at this mark, take a look at your phone now. This is an actual example of a slave auction that took place here with the monetary values listed next to each individual. Look towards the top in the left-hand column. Do you see a man named Cupid? He's the oldest man listed on this auction at 70 years old. He's being sold off for $12. Can you imagine a seven-year-old man whose life has been valued at $12? Halfway down the left column, you can see a 15-year-old girl named Rose being sold for $1,230. That's because a female slave of childbearing age can make more slaves, and so, by the sinister math of this brutal system, was a good investment. Based on records, we believe Nat was separated from his mother and sold at the age of seven. Just seven. After that, he was likely sold several more times before being sold for the last time at the age of 15. Take a look at your phone again. This is a newspaper clipping from the Charleston Courier from 1827. And it shows Nat Fuller's sale here at the age of 15. Right now, 
This is the only museum focused solely on African-American history in Charleston. And so I highly encourage you to come back and visit the Slave Mart Museum after the detour. All right, let's keep walking. Keep heading up Chalmers Street in the direction you were headed with the Slave Mart Museum on your right. The man who purchased Nat here that day was named William C. Gatewood. Now, we can never, ever call any slave lucky. Those two words do not belong together. But despite the horrible system under which their lives would intersect, Gatewood's plans did set Nat on the path to his destiny. See, Gatewood wasn't a local plantation owner. He's actually an outsider to Charleston, a businessman with grand ambitions of establishing himself among the gentry here. And to do that, he needed to wine, dine, and entertain them. And that changed Nat's life forever. Gateward purchased Nat with a singular purpose of training him to become a world-class home chef. Nat's world was about to change in a big way. And the first step was finding the perfect chef for Nat to apprentice under. When you get to this corner ahead, make it right onto the near side of Church Street. There's something really special I want to show you on this corner. So when it's safe, cross to the right, and when you get to the other side of the street, stop, and I'll tell you what to do. Okay, looking up Church Street with the Slave Museum to your right, do you see the red brick wall with the gray and whitest colored window frames just up ahead on the right? Walk to it and stop there. Remember when I said the slaves built this city brick by brick? Well, this is one of those places. Standing in front of the brick wall, look at the very bottom right-hand corner, down on the ground by the sidewalk. Starting at that very bottom right-hand corner of the wall, count up seven rows of bricks. Okay, now count over and left exactly seven bricks. Seven up, seven over. In the middle of that brick, you should see three distinct impressions. Go ahead and touch them. Those are the fingerprints of the slave who made that brick. Let that sink in. Here's Joseph McGill again to tell you how these fingerprints were made and their importance to him. The brick making process was a long drawn out process. It involved the clay, kneading the clay or preparing the clay to be put into molds. And those bricks in those molds would be sun dried. And when those bricks got a little stubborn, they still had to come out of those molds. So sometimes you can find fingerprints in those bricks. So if you go around the city and if you know what to look for, you can find these fingerprints. And I get a pleasure uh, in showing people these fingerprints and explaining the process to them, letting them know that, um, you know, it's our ancestors reaching out to us, telling us that we were here, tell our stories. Thanks, Joseph. You know, Nat Fuller's story was almost lost to time because his fingerprints, so to speak, were eaten. And that's why Dave and I were so determined to resurrect his story and some of his dishes for our 2015 feast. All right, when you're ready, let's keep going and I'll tell you the next chapter in Nat's amazing story. Facing the brick wall, turn left and continue on. So Gatewood's next step was to find someone for Nat to apprentice under. Now, every chef has that one mentor to help them that really puts them on their path. For me, it was my grandmother Doris. She used to keep me inside from playing with my brothers to teach me how to cook. She believed that a good cook could help keep a family together, and she chose me to pass the torch to and to keep that tradition alive. You should be approaching a paint church on the right. When you reach the church, stop. For Nat, his mentor was another amazing African-American woman named Eliza Seymour Lee. Okay, you with me? This is the French Huguenot Church. I've got you here because as I tell you about Nat's journey to becoming an incredible chef, it's worth knowing. 
what exactly was Eliza going to teach Nat to cook? The answer is South Carolina's culinary tradition, low country food. And the French Huguenot church here is a clue to one of the low country's biggest influences. Now, it may not be as obvious as a place like New Orleans, but Charleston is deeply influenced by the French, including our food. In fact, you're standing right in the middle of what's known as the French Quarter. The original name of this church was actually the Church of Tides. The street to the left of the church, Queen Street, used to be called Dock Street because it ran along a creek. So, people used to pull up to this church in boats. This church was started all the way back in 1680 when the French helped found Charleston. So, as you might guess, France's early influence makes French cuisine a pillar of low country cuisine. You can taste it in our many sauces and delicious desserts and pastries. And you can see it on our menus with sauces like Madeira sauce and desserts like pot de creme. So a ton of what Nat was learning to cook for classic French dishes. Besides the French, the other main influences on low country cuisine are English, a bit of Native American and Caribbean, and above all, African. As you heard, South Carolina's population was majority African-American. And it was those people and their ancestors that made one of the biggest contributions to low country cuisine. Keep moving, and I'll tell you more about how Nat's ancestors influenced the food he'd later come to master. With the French Huguenot church on your right, continue to the corner and turn right, keeping the church on your right. You should be turning on the Queen Street. Continue up this street to the next intersection. The slaves brought countless ingredients and recipes here from their ancestral homeland. These African ancestors were referred to as the Gullah people. Many think Gullah refers to the Gullah tribe who were enslaved and brought here. And over time, the word Gullah became Gullah. You'll see the word Gullah on a lot of menus in Charleston and it's the heart and soul of low country food. Gullah cuisine tends to be heavy on vegetables, things like okra and collards. It's believed the Gullah also brought the peanut with them. Later, they boiled the peanuts, which is now considered a signature South Carolina dish. They brought us one of the absolute staples of low country cuisine, Carolina gold rice. All right, ahead on your right, you should be approaching a parking lot. When you get there, make a right into it. Watch the driveway and the gate as you do. Okay, are you in the parking lot? Head towards the large brick wall straight ahead all the way in the back. This parking lot you're walking in right now is actually the back of the old slave mart we saw earlier. Back in those days, this lot was called Barracoon, which was the place where slaves, including Nat, were prepared for sale. Old men had their hair darkened with shoe polish to look young. Young women were dressed in nice clothes to look their prettiest. Sometimes I get overwhelmed here as I walk through and I think about Nat and I think of all the things he went through at, at a young age. Okay, did you make it to the brick wall? There are more fingerprints in some of these bricks. Yes. The slaves even built the buildings they were sold in. But despite all the sadness here, I also think about all of the culture and history that my ancestors brought with them. As I said, it's likely that Carolina Gold Rice, you know the rice that Charleston is famous for now and is served all over town in best restaurants, was originally brought over in the hands of these very slaves. Unsure of where they were going, they may have hit a taste of what was familiar so that they had something to eat wherever they landed. And after they arrived, they planted and cultivated that African rice in South Carolina. And let me tell you, rice may not sound sexy, but Carolina gold is in a league of its own. There's a reason it's our staple ingredient. So Charleston's food history is one deeply intertwined with the lives of these slaves. You can't separate the two. And that brings us back to Nat's story. Now, 
Nat had been put into an apprenticeship under Eliza Seymour Lee. Eliza and her husband John were free people of color, and they ran one of the most successful catering businesses in Charleston in the 1820s. Eliza began schooling Nat in everything from fine pastry to butchery to sauces. We think Nat would have worked for her for about three years. And when he emerged from her expert toolage, Nat was what they called a complete chef, meaning he could do it all. And now he was ready to put Gatewood on the map in Charleston. Okay, let's get moving. Facing the brick wall, turn around and exit the parking lot the way you came in. Nat started cooking at Gatewood's home as Gatewood wined and dined Charleston's finest. And it was a complete success. With the help of Nat's incredible cooking, Gatewood eventually became the head of some of Charleston's most prestigious social clubs. He joined the South Carolina militia and was elected ensign of his unit. He joined the Grand Lodge of the Ancient Freemasons and was appointed as Lodge Steward. The list goes on. As Gatewood's social network grew, Nat had the chance to show off his skills to the most elite citizens of Charleston. And they took notice. As you exit the parking lot, make a right. Nat worked for Gatewood from the age of 15 until he was 40. But by 1852, Nat was ready for bigger things. And it turns out, Nat wasn't just an extraordinary chef. He was a businessman. So he took the biggest risks of his life and went to Gatewood with a proposition. He asked Gatewood to allow him to move out of the house and began to work as a caterer for the upper class in Charleston. Nat was using his culinary skills to bargain for more freedom. At the corner, turn left at the crosswalk. As you get to the other side, you should be passing a building on the left with black and white mosaic tile at its entrance. Keep walking straight. Now, why would Gatewood agree to this? Because Nat offered him a cut of the profits. This was a controversial request. It was called being a self-hire, which was a way for especially skilled slaves to live and work on their own in return for payment to their masters. It wasn't freedom, but it was a measure of independence. The legality of this arrangement was questionable in the South, especially in the decade before the Civil War. But Gatewood knew Nat's true talent and realized that Nat could make good money with his cooking. Ahead on your left, you should be approaching a beige stucco building with a red door. It's number 33. Stop when you reach it. Okay, are you in front of 33 State Street? Today, this is a private residence. But back in the 1850s, this was one of the first places where Nat Fuller catered dinners under the self-hire system. Back then, this was a firehouse for a volunteer fire company called the Vigilant Fire Company. Their seal was probably emblazoned on the triangular top of this building. These volunteer fire companies were a lot like social clubs. And like all the prestigious clubs in Charleston, they liked to wine and dine their members, which required an amazing caterer. It was a sign of Nat's success that such a prestigious club hired him. He was making a name for himself, separate from Gatewood, as one of Charleston's top caterers. Throughout the 1850s, Nat grew in importance and influence in Charleston, eventually catering meals for groups as big as 600. The newspapers even called Nat the presiding culinary genius of Charleston. But perhaps even more importantly, this success made it possible for Nat to live independently with his family. You see, while he was apprenticing with Eliza, Nat met and married another apprentice, a pastry chef named Diana. And by the time he was catering, they had four children. But you know, today, I not only want to tell you how Nat's cooking changed his own life, I want to tell you how it changed the world around him. Okay. Let's start walking again. Facing the old firehouse, turn right and keep walking. Nat, as well as other African-American chefs, had a profound impact on Charleston's cuisine and restaurants. Over the years, 
that knowledge was largely forgotten until David Shields saved Nat's story. And now it inspires other chefs in Charleston. The African-American roots of Charleston's culinary history are finally being recovered and celebrated. And Chef Benjamin Dennis has been a key figure in that renaissance. He was my collaborator in the 2015 Nat Fuller Feast and is known as the Gullah Chef because he is a descendant of the original Gullah people. Here's Chef Dennis. My name is Benjamin Dennis, born and raised here in Charleston, 10th generation Charlestonian, but I'm all about culture and roots and culture through food. Food is a powerful tool, especially among chefs. At first, Gullah Chef was kind of like, why people calling me the Gullah Chef when I was, you know, a classically trained chef, and I realize now that I am the Gullah Chef because I am doing something that's bigger than food. It's learning about culture and roots through foodways and understanding my Gullah heritage, and I'm very proud of that now. At the intersection up ahead, you're going across to the opposite corner. You want to end up in front of the Scotchman convenience store. Watch for traffic as you do. When you get to the other side, I'll hand you back off to Chef Dennis to tell you about one of the Gullah's major contributions to Charleston's food, and something Nat Fuller himself was an absolute master at. As you get to the other side, continue walking straight with the Scotchman on your right. Here's Chef Dennis again. So uh, seafood is one of the most important components of Gullah cuisine. We came from West Africa, and most of us came from the coast of West Africa where fishing and living off the sea was important. And you see it in the food. I mean, we're very seafood-based. If you want to talk about Gullah food and, and what we love, we love oysters. Oysters fried, oysters steamed, oysters with rice, oysters with grits. We love oysters. We love it. We love it. Ahead on your right is a restaurant called Obar. The O stands for oyster because that's what they do best. When you get there, stop and I'll tell you what to do. Okay, you with me? Stand to the right of the front door and look at the menu. See the oysters on the half shell? The chef's daily selection? Oysters are plentiful in Charleston and the Lowcountry. And this spot has been an oyster joint for 40 years. One of their shuckers, Ivan, has been preparing oysters here for three decades. In fact, he's the second fastest shucker in the entire United States. He shucked a whopping 57 oysters in three minutes. Oysters were also one of Nat's specialties. When a lot of people think of Southern food, they think of fried chicken or fried green tomatoes. But those are much more recent additions. The food that Nat was cooking used simple, clean ingredients and much of it came from the sea and after all charleston is a poor city so seafood is king some of Nat's specialties were things like turtle soup poached bass and above all oysters nat made the most incredible oyster soup something you really can't find on menus anymore and he also served the finest oysters at his dinner so I think it's time to taste some of these delicious oysters for yourself. In a moment, you can pause me and head inside to the oyster bar and order some raw oysters. Or another dish if oysters aren't your thing. But trust me, these shuckers know their stuff. So don't be afraid to ask them questions and ask them what their catch of the day is. Their oysters are bright, briny, and delicious. Maybe Ivan will be your shucker today. And of course, tell them you're with Detour. So go ahead and pause me. And when you're done enjoying your oysters, come outside and press play. Okay, you back outside with me? With the O-Bar behind you, turn right. I'm going to take you to the beating heart of Charleston's culinary history and a place where we would have seen Nat Fuller every single day. The Charleston City Market. Now today, it's more of a touristy market with knickknacks, things people can easily travel with in their suitcases. But in the 1850s, it was a bright and vibrant farmer's market. Go ahead and cross the crosswalk ahead. Find a place to stand just past where you enter the market on your right. There should be an open air building to your right and one to your left. It may be crowded, but don't worry, I'll be with you. 
Okay, did you find a place to stop? On the buildings across from you, the one that was on the left as you walked in, you should see a mural of an African-American woman with vegetables and flowers around her. That's a clue to what this place was. Some people mistakenly believe that this was a place where slaves were sold, but they have it backwards. This is a place where African-Americans were selling things. This place sold fruit, vegetables, and flowers. When Nat was 15, he was sent here to fill Eliza's shopping list every day. During Nat's heyday as a caterer, he also became Charleston's top game purveyor and eventually owned his own stall in this market. He sold everything from venison and quail to ducks and capon, and his stuff was considered the best in town. By this time, Nat had taken on an apprentice of his own, a young African-American man named Tom Tully, to help him run his game business here. By 1860, Nat was settled into his catering business and his game stall, so he was ready for the next big challenge, becoming a restaurateur. At that time, no enslaved African-American had ever owned a restaurant in Charleston. But Gatewood saw the opportunity in that, and the bachelor's retreat was born, back on Church Street, where we started our walk. It immediately became the place to eat in Charleston. Okay, let's head out of the market. With the building with the mirror of the African-American woman on your left, exit the market and cross the crosswalk. Turn left when you get to the other side. Okay, turn left. The Rainbow Market convenience store should be on your right. While Nat was impressing Charleston's elite with his food at the bachelor's retreat, he was also using his kitchen to train the next generation of African-American chefs. Remember his apprentice, Tom Tully? He became Nat's protege. Okay, you should see Henry's, a restaurant and bar up ahead on your right. When you get there, stop in front. Henry's has been open since 1932 and is living proof of Nat Fuller's legacy in Charleston. In the 1940s, a young African-American named John Bolton started working in the kitchen here. John quickly rose up, and by the 1950s, he was head chef of Henry's and launched into prominence in Charleston's restaurant scene. Food historians like David Shields consider John to be one of Charleston's greatest chefs of the mid-20th century. So how is John Bolton related to Nat Fuller? John was mentored by an African-American chef named William Barron. And William Barron was mentored by Tom Tully, Nat Fuller's protege. This restaurant is a direct descendant of Nat Fuller. But I want to tell you about Nat's most important legacy, the reason we're taking this walk today. In a moment, you can pause me and head inside and upstairs to Henry's incredible rooftop. It's one of the best views in the entire holy city. When you walk in, just let the hostess know you're headed up to the top deck. And if it's too crowded up there, don't worry. Just find a place to grab a drink and sit, and I'll tell you the story. Okay, pause me, and once you're settled, hit play. If you made it up to the top deck, I told you this was a great view, right? I hope you've got a drink because guess what? Nat Fuller wasn't just one of the greatest chefs in Charleston's history. He was also our first mixologist. Brandy smashes, mint juleps. The locals said he was a magician when it came to making a good drink. All right, so let me tell you what happened to Nat during the Civil War. Nat opened the Bachelor's Retreat in 1860 and it was an instant success. But by 1861, Charleston was in the midst of the Civil War and the city was in ruins. In fact, the building you're sitting in right now burned to the ground in an 1861 wartime fire. For four years, the war raged. And throughout that entire time, Nat managed to keep his business alive. Sometimes, he and his staff had to flee artillery fire. He even had to move his entire restaurant several blocks uptown to escape the Union bombardment. But in February of 1865, the city surrendered to the Union. 
Charleston and the South had lost, and Charleston's slave population was finally free. For the first time in his life, Nat Fuller was a free man. The streets of Charleston right below us were filled with thousands of parading, celebrating African Americans. But the city was still filled with racial tension. How would the citizens of Charleston, white and African American, adjust to the new world order? Nat was moved by what Abraham Lincoln called the better angels of our nature. And that was what motivated him to organize the reconciliation feast at the Bachelors Retreat. In April 1865, Charleston's most important black and white citizens joined Nat at the Bachelors Retreat. We know very little about what exactly took place there that night. But we know that the guests probably sat next to strangers and that they toasted and sang songs to freedom and even to the fallen Abraham Lincoln, who had been assassinated several days earlier. That story is the most powerful one I've ever known as a chef. And he inspired me to use food to bring people together to break bread, to make my own change. When David Shields found that story, he and I and a small group got to work planning a new Nat Fuller's Feast in 2015 to honor Nat's legacy. But we never could have imagined that Nat's message of reconciliation will once again be so timely for the people in Charleston. We had been planning our feast for almost a year. Then, two weeks before the event, an unarmed African-American was shot and killed by a white police officer in Charleston. It was a difficult time for the city. And in that moment, our feast to honor Nat Fuller took on a new purpose. To bring the community together just like Nat had done. We invited a wide variety of people in Charleston to our table. Teachers, community organizers, politicians, and businessmen. People who were all dedicated to enriching our community. Men like Joseph McGill, who you met earlier. Women like Robin Griffiths, a chef in Charleston, and a direct descendant of Eliza Seymour Lee, who was Nat's mentor. Our former mayor, Joe Riley, and the esteemed Reverend Clementa Pinckney. During the feast, Reverend Pinckney shared how deeply moved he was by Nat Fuller's message of forgiveness and grace. Okay, if you need to finish your drink, pause me, and when you're outside Henry's, press play so I can take you to our final stop, the restaurant where we had our 2015 Nat Fuller feast. I'll meet you back outside to finish our story. Okay, are you with me outside Henry's? With your back to Henry's, turn left and start walking up the street. The Rainbow Market should be on your left. Now, over the last two decades, Charleston has become a destination on the global food map. Anthony Bourdain has filled here twice, and Top Chef set an entire season here. Our chefs are crazy talented, and they're embracing the cultural heritage of our food but Charleston chefs were hungry for meaning. Just like us, they wanted to use their talent to really bring people together. You should be approaching a small one-way street, Rafer's Alley. Watch your step as you cross and look for traffic. Keep walking to the end of this block. When you get there, you're going to make a right. So, as soon as we told our local colleagues about the feast we wanted to throw, they lined up to help us. The response was overwhelming. Eventually, we got a call from Sean Brock, the James Beard Award winner and head chef and partner at McCready's Tavern, a top restaurant here in Charleston. He heard what we were doing and wanted to offer us the use of his entire restaurant and kitchen to hold Nat Fuller's feast. It was amazing. This was really going to happen. So we immediately got to work. As you exit the Charleston City Marketplace ahead, make a right on this near corner and cross the double crosswalk. I'll meet you on the other side. The first step was figuring out what we were going to serve. And that's where David Shields came in again. He helped us track down the recipes of Nat's finest dishes. 
stuff you can't find anymore, like turtle soup and shrimp pie. Okay, you should be across the first crosswalk. Now cross the second. With the market behind you, keep walking straight. You should see a giant marble building with big columns on your left on the other side of the street. This is East Bay Street. About 20 years ago, Charleston's food renaissance exploded along this street. Plenty of restaurants try to make a name for themselves by doing something new. But it turns out, Charleston earned its spot on the foodie map by embracing tradition. Just like Nat Fuller, local chefs like B.J. Dennis, Sean Brock, work with simple, pure ingredients to perfect original, low-country dishes. And because of the work of people like David Shields, the integrity and taste of these ingredients being grown in Charleston are second to none. At industrial farms, vegetables are engineered for appearance or resistance to disease. But in Charleston, taste is king. Our food revolution is based on our original, low country crops, the same crops Nat Fuller used. All right. So now let's get back to our 2015 feast. You're going to go straight at this intersection. So wait for the light and watch for traffic as you do. I'll meet you on the other side. Okay, keep walking straight. As I said, the chefs in Charleston immediately rolled up their sleeves to cook, serve, and even clean up at the feast. Whatever we needed. But it wasn't just the chefs. The extended community rallied behind us too. The art gallery where the bachelor's retreat used to be gave us the space for a pre-dinner reception. Joseph McGill recruited his Civil War reenactment group to guard the dinner just like those black Union soldiers did in 1865. And my students from the Connor Institute of Charleston helped me and Chef Dennis in the kitchen. And wow, I will always have a soft spot for those students. Just as Nat passed his torch to Tom Tully, and my grandmother Doris passed hers on to me, I want to give my passion and knowledge to my students. Watch for the traffic as you cross this alley on your right. The chance to cook such an incredible feast with them, a feast with dishes we had never tried before, was one of the highlights of my career. The feast hadn't even happened yet, and Nat Fuller's spirit was already running through us all. So, how did we choose the attendees for the feast? We surprised them, that's how. Watch for cars as you pass this parking lot on your right. We put together a secret nominating committee that searched all over Charleston for the influences of this place. People dedicated to the community. And then one day, unbeknownst to them, an invitation appeared in their mailbox like a golden ticket. On the night of the feast, this wide array of amazing individuals arrived at the old bachelor's retreat to meet each other, in many instances for the first time. But as they gathered, so did the storm clouds and it began to rain. At the intersection ahead, continue walking straight. Laganita's tap room will be on your right and just keep walking. We were worried about people getting soaked on their way from the old bachelor's retreat to McCready's Tavern. But there was magic that night. As we left the old bachelor's retreat to walk to the feast, the clouds literally parted. Chef Dennis and I, along with my students and several other top chefs in town, were at work in the kitchen preparing those dishes that hadn't been seen in Charleston for a hundred years. As we reconstructed his recipes and used the original heirloom ingredients, it seemed like Nat was right there cooking with us. Okay, ahead on the right, you should see a McCready sign. But continue walking until you get to a tiny alley on your right called Unity Alley. Turn right into the alley. Walk down the alley and up ahead on your right, you'll see the sign from McCready's Tavern. The spot where our 2015 Nat Fuller feast took place. When you reach the restaurant, stop outside. As I said, this is Unity Alley. And it perfectly reflects what we did here as a community in 2015. Don't get me wrong. A big part of the night was about the food for sure. We resurrected some of Nat's best dishes 
and toasted with great cocktails to his spirit. I can still remember the feeling as we all walked down this alley. We walked down this alley as strangers, but by the end of the night, all that had changed. Friendships were made that night. Professional partnerships were forged. Communities that far too often are separated from each other came together. Strangers sat next to strangers to talk and connect. Like Nat Fuller's feast in 1865, we didn't fix everything, but I like to think we changed the people that were there and that they will change the people in their lives and so on and so on. And you know what? It's already happening. After other towns heard about the Nat Fuller feast we threw here in Charleston, they began reaching out to David and I, asking how they could throw their own. Big cities, small towns, and everything in between. There's a hunger to connect out there, and Nat Fuller's message is resonating. Now, just eight weeks after our feast, on June 17, 2015, Charleston experienced another unbelievable act of violence. An angry, disturbed white man entered a prayer group at the Mother Emanuel Church a few blocks north of here and shot and killed nine innocent African Americans. Reverend Clementa Pinckney was one of those killed. You may remember when he attended our feast, he was particularly moved by Nat's story of forgiveness and grace. The man who shot these beautiful men and women said he wanted to start a race war. But instead, Charleston took to the Ravenel Bridge to respond as a community. Take a look at your phone now. Thousands of people of every race, age, color, and creed held hands across the bridge. So many people participated that they literally connected downtown Charleston to Mount Pleasant. We literally connected with each other. And I have to believe that there's no better way to honor Nat Fuller's legacy. All right, I'm going to leave you here. I hope you were moved by Nat Fuller's story. And I bet all this talk of low country cooking has made you hungry. So feel free to head into McCready's Tavern in a moment. If you made a reservation, you can check in with the hostess. And if you don't have a reservation, try to grab a spot at the bar or one of the communal tables. Be sure to tell them you were on a detour and they will offer you a complimentary dessert with the purchase of an entree. Once you're seated, be sure to embrace the spirit of the reconciliation feast and strike up a conversation with the person next to you. Enjoy.